According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. We'll see how far we go today. Allergy season, I think we do good to hit 50 or 55 minutes before I run out of voice. (coughs) So we'll see. Lord's in charge of that too. Proverbs 16. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness to lead our time of study today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we call upon Your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. And I ask, Father, that You would reward these brothers and sisters that are hungry to be fed, that are positive to truth. Father, that you would bless this time of study and not not allow it to be impaired by uh, the, the human weaknesses and limitations on the, the part of the speaker. We thank you for your faithfulness, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so last week we were dealing with really the centerpiece to the book of Proverbs, which is uh, verse 17, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his life. And this is the center verse of uh, the entire book uh, by the Masoretic count, although that, even that gets debated, um, different ways to versify and different ways to count uh, the words and so forth. But uh, some would say it's verses 16 and 17 together. Some would say it's 17 all by itself. And, uh, and then they'll argue about the, the poetry and the, and, and, and the structure and so forth. Be that as it may. I do think, though, that if you're walking in wisdom, you're on the Lord's highway right there. I mean, it's, it's smooth sailing. Not problem-free, but smooth sailing when you're on the Lord's highway and, uh, and uh, departing from evil and pursuing the upright way. And, and then, in particular, watching uh, that you do not stumble. As it says, he who watches his way preserves his soul preserves his life. And so we should be on guard. And uh, we do deal with this. It seems simple enough. Turning away from evil seems simple enough, whether it's uh, Nancy Reagan and her Just Say No campaign, or it's it's uh, that Bob Newhart comedy sketch where you just stop it. You know, I mean, how tough is that? You just stop it, you know, and it should be pretty, pretty simple. But here, yeah, as easy as it is, we don't stop it. We go right back to it. We we go back to evil. We go back to our sin nature. We decide to uh, to turn to the left or the right and chart our own course with what we're doing. And then and then we get all shocked when we come under the hand of God's divine discipline. Well, that's what happens when you get off the highway that He's designed for you. So it's a good central uh, verse, not only for the book of Proverbs, it's a good central verse for the entire Bible when it comes to why do we study to show ourselves approved and what is it we're hoping to uh, to have happen by reading the Bible as much as we read it. Uh, this high road or this highway does require watchful guard duty and really doubling up of these terms here, doubling up with shamer and Natser really reinforces uh, the fact that that we must be on the alert, that the Christian walk is not automatic, it's not easy. It says be careful how you walk in uh, in Ephesians 5.15. We have to redeem the time for the days are evil and uh, all the principles that apply there. Doubling up on Shamer, number 8104, and Natser, number 5341, 
uh, really reinforces the guard duty that we have, that we are watchful, that we are guarding, defending, protecting, tending. Uh, Shamer is the verb that was used for Adam when he was told to guard the garden, to cultivate it, and to keep it. And then uh, Natsar also speaks of watchfulness, speaks of uh, really sleeplessness. If you're if you're staying on guard duty and and you're you're you have to make sure you're the one that stays awake to watch uh, to be mindful of these things. All right, so that's what we dealt with last week. Today I want to spend some time <coughs> looking at <coughs> verses eighteen and nineteen. And the best part about these verses is that we've taught them already is that uh, the issues here of pride and humility and pride goes before the fall uh, is not new in, uh, to us, and it's not new in the, in the book of Proverbs. And so, in a sense, here we go again. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And so these two verses, 18 and 19, then form a poetic unit as far as the Hebrew is concerned here of this chapter. And we will handle it as a unit then under main point five. Pride leads to destruction. And uh, the various terms for destruction are interesting because that not only do they apply in personal life, but they actually uh, are used frequently in angelic conflict contexts and different aspects there. Why is uh, Abaddon called the destroyer? And why do we have Abaddon as well as Sheol and some of our uh, angelic studies that we do? Pride leads to destruction, and the humble are blessed in community. The neat part about being humble is you can surround yourself around other humble people, and you've got marvelous uh, resonance. You've got marvelous fellowship in the Word of God and and a marvelous uh, sense of, of community that builds then in that mutual uh, reinforcing humility. And, uh, and it, it's uh, something that can feed one another and encourage one another in this regard. So we'll be looking at these verses here in Proverbs 16. Like I say, it's nothing new. We had it way back in chapter 3, uh, Proverbs 3.34, with respect to pride going before the fall. And uh, parents and urging their children to be grounded in the Word of God, to be stable in their Christian walk in these, uh, in these ways. And so once we get through these Proverbs and deal with it here, then I want to spend the the time today reminding ourselves related to angelic conflict and the fall of Satan and why it really comes down to um, what we've been looking at in uh, Philippians chapter 2, the kenosis, the attitude of Jesus Christ. We're told to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's not the satanic attitude of pride and self-exaltation. That's Jesus' attitude of emptying yourself, laying aside privileges, and uh, coming to this earth to do what the Father has for you to do. And, uh, and so here we are, and we're here in the, in the Father's hands. We've got to be about our Father's business in uh, in this way. So when we deal with the issues of pride and humility, we're dealing with the essence of God's demonstration against Satan's pride and fall. Not only is God judging it, he's demonstrating the judgment of that. And he demonstrates the judgment of that every single day, every single moment in uh, in our lives when he's judging our pride and when he's judging our uh, rebellious uh, spirit. 
So that's what we'll look at from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Ultimately, this is the prime illustration for the two modes of wisdom. And I don't know if you're tired of looking at this chapter yet or not. I go here a lot because it lays it out there in, in very clear terms. So there's a wisdom from above and there's a wisdom from below. And it's, it's right there in that paragraph from verse 13 to 18 in James chapter 3. And when you look at this and then it just jumps off the page at you and it becomes a no-brainer. And you recognize, wow, uh, there's wisdom on, on the one hand, there's wisdom on the other hand, and clearly I want to be I want to be serving God in His wisdom. I want nothing to do with the world's wisdom. That's what promotes the pride and the arrogance and the bitterness and the things that we're going to see there. <coughs> All right. So that's where we're headed. That's our message today. And, and if I uh, don't make it to the end of the hour, then you can take it the rest of the way yourself. You can look up the verses and, uh, and take it from there. All right. But let's back up. Let's look at Proverbs 3.34. Remind ourselves of what we've already seen, because we have uh, this concept here repeated in a number of different ways. Proverbs three thirty four. <coughs> and really, this is the verse that gets adapted in James and in First Peter, where uh, he is opposed to the proud. Not only is he opposed to the proud, but exactly how is he opposed to the proud? He scoffs at the scoffers. Though he scoffs at scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. And uh, the beautiful part about the poetry here, what Hebrew poetry does, and when you, you take a term like scoffing and you turn it back on itself, and you recognize that what God does oftentimes in his judgment, Arnold Fruchtenbaum speaks to this, that he returns like for like in kind. And so if he's judging pride, the form of judgment that he, that he applies to that pride is going to be in itself a pride of a, of a sort, of a sense. He's, so he's going, to, he's going to mock them. He's going, to, he's going to scoff at the scoffers. And so they're going to receive back what it is that is displeasing to him. And this is what he does. That's why it's called compound discipline or double compound discipline when he turns it back in this way. So he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. And that too is, is something to consider. And I would ask, um, you know, on a, on a legitimate basis here, if we're going to keep this poetry on the same level that we're, that we're taking the A part of the verse, can we not say the same thing to the B part of the verse? In other words, is grace and affliction, is that also synonymous? Like when he says uh, he scoffs at the scoffers, but he gives grace to the afflicted? What does it mean to be afflicted? And could we not think of being afflicted as a grace opportunity? The fact that I am afflicted, whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil, whatever it is that's afflicting me, the fact that I'm in affliction means I am in a grace opportunity. It's an open door for God to shine forth His grace. And so then as we pray about it, as we wrestle with the Lord and we give it back to Him and we celebrate we say uh, we, we can. At the same time, we say, Father, I'm under affliction right now. Say, Father, I'm in a grace opportunity right now for you to shine forth your grace in this thing here we call affliction. And, uh, and this is a marvelous opportunity for you to show even more grace. He gives an even greater grace, we're told, that when we're weak, then we're strong. And so, you know, if the, if the affliction's ramping up, praise God, that means the grace is ramping up. And we get, uh, we get to celebrate God's provision even more so in that regard. So, 
Here in Proverbs 3.34 is what we call the antithetical parallelism. We have the A statement followed by a but or a yet, and then the B statement, which seems to uh, give the other side of the story. So they're scoffing at scoffers on the one hand, and yet, if the person's not a scoffer but a humble person uh, serving him, then uh, he's going to give grace to the afflicted. So that's the A versus B in an antithetical parallelism there. I forgot to highlight the the parallels in 16, so let's grab that again on our way by. Back to 16 again real quickly. Should have spotlighted this before we left the chapter. Because we've got two different things going on here in 18 and 19. Each verse itself has an A and a B half called dice stitches, two halves to the poetry. And so there's an A and a B part within verse 18. There's an A and a part within verse 19. But then also we can look at the verses in in their entirety. We can look at verse 18 as an A part and verse 19 as a B part. And we can see the, the parallels that can be drawn there. And so in 18, you'll notice, are these saying opposite things or are they saying the same thing? They're saying the same thing. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So that's called synthetic parallelism because both the A part and the B part are effectively saying the same thing. That uh, you don't want to be prideful because that's heading you down the destructive path. And you don't want to be haughty, another word for prideful, it's a synonym. You don't want to be haughty because that's going to trip you up. Okay, So both, uh, both the A part and the B part are saying the same thing. So we call this synthetic parallelism. Verse 19 it is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly, so that's humility and why it's better, than to divide the spoil with the proud. And so here the A and the B are different because you have humility in the A part, you have pride in the B part, and it's showing it as a contrast and showing why obviously not only is it better, but the other is completely unacceptable, that uh, the other is is out of the plan of God entirely. And so this here we have the, the better than contrast in this poetry of verse 19. <coughs> All right. And then you put the two together. And you have the verse 18, you have the verse 19, where really um, you've got three of the four portions are all about pride. And it's just that one in the middle that says in 19a that says, it is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly, with the lowly. So is, does this poetry have you start to feel outnumbered? The fact that three out of these four dice stitches are, are negative about pride, and it's only that one little fourth of this, of this poem that, that is positive with respect to uh, humility. Well, we're not outnumbered because we're in community with fellow believers. We're in community with fellow brothers and sisters that love the, love the Word of God, that are growing together in the Word of God. So it's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly. And there's the aspect of community that comes with that. All right, then we can pass this chapter and move on to chapter 18. <coughs> and verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. And so I don't see a lot of difference between this and what we saw in chapter 3 or what we saw in chapter 11 or what we saw in chapter uh, eight, uh, 16. It's just here we put we reverse the order. We put the destruction up front before destruction. The heart of man is haughty. And so it's the same way of saying the same thing. You just move the words around. 
And you put destruction up front, and then you talk about haughtiness. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. And remember, that is a promise. The honor is a promise, and it may seem like it's not coming. And it may seem like there's nobody in the world that, that is honoring your humility, that you're, uh, you're more humble than the people are willing to honor, right? Well, stop right there. Who says the honor comes from human beings? And who says the honor comes in time? Ultimately speaking, the, the honor is going to come from God. Each man's praise will come to himself from God, will come, and, and it's going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. It may not be in this life. How much honor do you want in this life? Different aspects on that. Um, anyway, so there's, there's a question for you. Uh, do, does he have to honor us in time? What if we have zero honor of any sort here in time? Say, does that make him any less faithful? No, not at all. And besides the fact, my suspicion is we have more honor in time than we recognize. We have more honor in time than we usually give credit to because we don't want to see it for what it is. In the ways that God is honoring us is uh, often a, a challenge to observe. We'll, we'll point that out when we get to this chapter. Then uh, chapter 29 of verse 23 A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. So again and again and again. So now, why are these Proverbs so redundant? Why do they keep repeating the same thing? I mean, isn't the first time good enough? Isn't once sufficient? No, it's not sufficient. God provides us this information again and again and again and again, so it gets reinforced over and over again so that we grind it into our thinking, get it through our, our thick skulls. All right, so pride is terrible. (laughs) <laughs> pride takes you to terrible places. Pride has destructive consequences. And, uh, and yet, what does it take to, to overcome that? I, I believe it, it takes the power of God. I believe it takes the grace of God through His Word to reshape us. Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, where would we be? We'd all be in the same pride. We would all pursue it no matter how self-destructive it is. That's the nature of fallen man. That's the nature of our carnality. That's the nature of sin. And, and it seems to make no sense and you look at it and say, well, why are you pursuing that? It's not rational. No, it's, it's sinful. That's why. And don't confuse the, the power that sin has over you with anything uh, rational when it comes down to that. All right. So now this whole question of pride and humility, this is the essence of God's demonstration against Satan's pride and fall. Colonel Theme used to say that pride was the granddaddy of all, of all the sins, and it really is. It feeds every other sin, and it preceded every other sin. It was the very first sin in the entire angelic conflict was the pride that Satan had, first of all, internally, and then he voiced it, and then he acted on it. And through, uh, through the mental, verbal, and, and overt expressions of his pride, launched the entire angelic conflict against the rule of God. And so here we are. Humanity comes along now to resolve that. And God is resolving the pride rebellion by demonstrating the humble mortality of human beings and the humble low state of us and how His grace shines in our affliction is the answer to all of the pride and all of the rebellion that Satan and the the third of the angels that went with him that Satan is pouring forth. So now I'm going to get to Isaiah 14, I'm going to get to Ezekiel 28, but I'm going to do so on the way with uh, Philippians 2. 
So I think the Lord is giving us this, this um, doctrine. And Austin Bible Church is going to be accountable for this since it's giving us uh, Philippians and Hebrews and Proverbs all at this time. But Philippians chapter 2, and as we read the kenosis paragraph, <coughs> we're going to read it this morning in the, in the mindset of the fall of Satan. Because we're about to get to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we're going to be reading about the fall of Satan, and really we're going to see how in this kenosis glory, when we see in the, in the, 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 the thrill of God the Father to be pleased with God the Son, in the humility of God the Son, this is what resolves that rebellion, that angelic rebellion. This is why we have the universal plan of salvation that we have, not only for human reconciliation, but for angelic uh, resolution to the angelic rebellion. All right, so Philippians chapter 2. The um, verses 1 through 4 is the introduction to 5 through uh, 8, so let's look at it. <coughs> Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any aff- affection and compassion, and all of these are true, All of these are absolutely true. They're true for us. They should have been true in the angelic stewardship had, you know, Satan and the rebellion not occurred. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on what, on one purpose. And so the blessings of unity, the blessings of unity are not just, you know, good things. We're not just happy to be unified. Uh, but it really speaks to what happened when Satan rebelled. It was the end of unity. For the first time ever, there was disunity in the universe. So we had unity in the Godhead. We had unity in the angelic realm. We had unity all throughout. In fact, we can say that the, the, the consolation and the fellowship and affection and compassion that before the angels fell, that that was there in some form, that they, they react, they, they interacted with each other, the angelic beings did, until rebellion, until disunity, and until a different mind entered, until different thinking found expression. And so when he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, we understand that this is like-mindedness with the Father and the Son, and this is, um, this is uh, what it's all about. All right. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. In other words, don't be an imitator of Satan. When Satan rebelled, and when we see it in Isaiah 14, all five of those I wills, those five I wills are, are, are exactly this. Selfishness and empty conceit expressed verbally again and again and again and again. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is what Satan couldn't do. This is what Satan, where Satan drew a line in the sand. This is what triggered the fall. The idea that somebody was more important than him, that's, that's unthinkable. Pride won't let you consider that somebody is, is more important than you. In fact, when pride is really bad, pride won't let you consider that somebody has any worth at all. Forget the fact that they're less important than you. They're not even any important. They have no importance of any kind. See, so that, uh, that just magnifies the rebellion even more. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Again, in the view of Satan's fall, what was he doing? He was looking out for himself. 
had no consideration whatsoever that there was any other being. The only other being he even acknowledged existed was the one that he was lusting after was God. I will be like the Most High God. When it comes right down to it. All right, so then the imperative. Think this way. Think this way. So what's the answer to pride? We want to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We want our thinking transformed. We want the Word of God to shape how we think so the Word of God shapes who we are. Think this way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we're not left. We're not abandoned. We're not just uh, you know fallen beings in a fallen world, uh, just at, at the whims of a fallen angel who's the God of this age. We have a positive example. We have a righteous standard. We have the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ who came to this earth, who identified with us, and who has now provided for us with our, um, with our think of it as the, 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 the guide star, the north star, the, the fixed uh, star. We can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we have our eyes fixed on him, we have the example that we need to imitate as, uh, as the word of God is going to point us that direction. So have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, we're reading this in the context of Satan's fall. What had Satan vowed? Satan vowed, I will be like the Most High God. Satan was in the form of an angel. He was in the form of a, of a dragon. He was in the form of a glorious being. And yet his form betrayed his insanity. His form betrayed his vow because his form was a creature. His form was a finite being. His form was of a as powerful as he was, as glorious as he was, as beautiful as he was, as wise as he was. I mean, think of Satan as the pinnacle of everything, as, as, as beautiful as he was and powerful. He was still finite. He was a creature with a beginning. And so he was not in the form of God. God is without form. God is spirit. God is the eternal I am. God is the one without beginning, without ending. And so for a creature, somebody that has a beginning, whether it's a, you know your two-year-old, your toddler, or, or yourself, or Satan, or whatever, every one of us in this room had a beginning because we're all finite creatures. And so once you have a beginning, it's too late. (laughs) You've already had a beginning. You've already had a start of some kind. And so that very fact means you're not the eternal I am. You're not the the beginningless, eternal, uh, causeless, the uncaused cause. All these things that we study when we we, uh, get into Geisler and systematic theology, when you're studying pure aseity, when you're studying pure existence, when you're uh, studying things like uh, actuality versus potentiality. God doesn't have potentiality because God is pure actuality. He's the only being that is. The only being that can be. The rest of us have all kinds of potentialities because uh, we can only actualize certain things. We're not pure actuality. Say, uh, Wes, could you help those men out there? All right, we've got some visitors and I'm not sure not sure why. All right. And so here is Satan in his rebellion. <coughs> it says, although he existed, or here's Jesus in his humility, 
although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to, to be clung to with your, you know, with your bitter, you know, he's just the opposite. Satan wanted something that wasn't true and was, was willing to rebel against God and, and stake the entire universe on his rebellion. He wanted to grab something he could never hold on to. He could never even lay hold of. Jesus, on the other hand, let go. He let go of what he already had, what he eternally had, see? And that's the imagery of this. So he doesn't stop being God, of course, but when he lets it go, he stops exercising those prerogatives. He stops exercising the uh, privileges of his omni-attributes, of his deity. And so he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Kanao is the verb. So we call this the kenosis taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, he emptied himself, he poured himself out, he laid aside his privileges, is is what I like to render this as, taking the form of a bondservant. And so during that time, from the moment when he kanaod, which I believe was at conception, all right, not birth, not virgin birth, I believe that at conception, that, that, that God the Son the God-man was in the virgin's womb at conception. Other people think it was at virgin birth. But um, I think, based on how the, the dynamic between the, the infants, when, when John the Baptist heard Mary's voice and, and the child within you, um, I believe that the kenosis was at conception. That he emptied himself so that the God-man would be in the body. When, when it says, a body thou hast prepared for me. And so he humbled himself. He spent nine months in a womb, all right? And then he spent 30 years on this earth. And then he walked with some disciples for three and a half years. And each, each step was more gruesome than the step before, all right? Related to that. Being made in the likeness of man and being found, being found in appearance as a man. And again, we're, we're reading these verses in the context of the fall of Satan, and so it's not just the, the fact of his humility that we have the pinnacle of humility to answer the pinnacle of arrogance. That's what it comes down to. Jesus has the victory in the pinnacle of humility which answers the pinnacle of arrogance which was Satan's rebellion. And so he comes, he humbles himself, and he is now on display. He's now on display. These words on the slide are not accidental demonstration and illustration. God is a, is a demonstrator. God is displaying. God is not only ready to destroy Satan's rebellion, but he's going to demonstrate his righteousness in doing so. He demonstrates it to Satan himself. He demonstrates it to all the fallen angels. He demonstrates it to the elect angels who never fell. And he demonstrates it to humanity. And so all of these demonstrations become important. Not only did Jesus have to become a man, he had to be demonstrated as a man, which meant he had to be demonstrated to have our problems, our testing, our weaknesses. And that demonstration took place. So being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There was no line he was not willing to cross. Even death on a cross. And so uh, the fact that there was no line, he, he didn't obey up to a point, he didn't obey up to a point, he didn't reach a line in the sand and say, all right, that's it, Father. I'm not going to take that final step. What did he say in the garden of Gethsemane? 
He said, not my will, but thine be done. Even if he was tempted to say, take this cup from me. And so there was no limit. He never drew a line in the sand. He never said, beyond this point I will not go. So the pinnacle of this is even death on a cross. That too becomes a demonstration of Satan's rebellion. I believe Satan had all kinds of lines. We're going to see that in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. That he had different lines. And each time he, he was unwilling to cross a line, I think his sin was magnified. Each time he wouldn't cross a line, he went from a mental sin to a verbal sin to an overt sin. And each time that sin magnified from mental to verbal to overt, every time there was an acceleration of Satan's rebellion, I think we can track it with a, uh, a line that he would not cross. And how glorious is that then, that Jesus had no lines that he would not cross. That he was willing to, to if, if the Father was taking him there, he was going to go there. Didn't matter as far as that, because that's, that's what humility does. Humility says, you're my Father, you love me. You're my Father, you know best. You're my Father, I trust you. And humility goes on that basis, and Jesus demonstrated that for us. And so it is for this reason also, in verse 9, Recognize that pride and humility are both causative. Pride and humility are both causative. That when we exercise pride, that causes God to administer judgment. When we manifest humility, that causes God to to apply blessing and to express joy and to shine forth in, uh, in positive consequences that these are causative. They are for this reason also. And that's the plain language. I understand that God knows ahead of time and He's got foreknowledge and, and we're not really forcing Him to do anything. If, uh, if you think that causative equals force, just stop right there. It's not, we're not overcoming sovereignty or making Him bless us because we're humble people. But it is causative. It is logically causative based upon how He designed His volitional realm. If that helps you. I hope that helps you. All right. Because it's logically causative. It says, for this reason. God as a rational thinker is responding to the stimulus of our humility, of Jesus' humility. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And in fact, everything Satan wanted, Jesus got. Satan wanted the promotion, Jesus got it. Satan wanted the throne, Jesus got it. Satan wanted the name, Jesus got it. The name above every name that is named. See, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. There can only be one supreme authority. (laughs) So that every knee, there can't be two. There can't be two or more. The minute you have more than one, then there's some knees that aren't included in every knee. But no, we have every knee and every tongue because Jesus is supreme. So every knee will uh, bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. (coughs) And that's what it comes down here. Remember again, reading these verses in light of the fall of Satan, we have the dimensions of in the heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. Read these verses in context for the fall of Satan, and you realize that the plan of God is bigger than just saving humans. The plan of God is, includes saving humans, yes. The reconciliation of, of uh, the Adamic fall is, is part of God's plan. But it's a bigger plan than that. And it includes these, uh, resol- re- uh, resolving the rebellion of Satan and the one-third of the angels that went with him.
Every tongue will confess that not Satan is Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's what it's about. All right. Isaiah 14. And I think we have turned to these chapters in the Philippians study. I think we have turned to these chapters in the Hebrew study. I know we've turned to these chapters in the Hebrew study. And turning to these chapters in the Proverbs study means we're getting them at least three times over and probably more. But I think it's important. I also think it's being rejected. Over the last 20 years, seminaries and theology textbooks and scholars um, have really worked hard to erase angels out of the Bible. They've really worked hard to remove anything pertaining to Satan and his fall, pertaining to angelic conflict, pertaining to uh, things that used to be taught more consistently than, than they are now. And, uh, and even among doctrinal men, we're starting to see more and more that are walking away from uh, the Nephilim of Genesis 6, for example, and being the hybrid of fallen angels and human women. We're starting to see them fall, uh, turn away from this chapter, for example. This is all, they would tell you that Satan's not even in this chapter. This is all about the king of Babylon. This is all Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon. Like, are you kidding me? Wait a minute. And the same thing in, in Ezekiel 28. More and more are starting to say, no, that's not Satan. That's, uh, that's the king of Tyre, and his name is Ethbaal III, and whatever, whatever. And it's just, it's, to me, it's heartbreaking, but uh, reflective of the spirit of our age that's, uh, that's dealing with this. All right. First of all, even before we get to 12 and following, the larger context for this is that it is a taunt. It is a taunt in verse 4. And it is a promised taunt that they're supposed to sing in the millennial kingdom. So verse 3 says, it will come about in the, in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved. So not until they come through the tribulation, not until they're in the millennial kingdom, not until Satan is bound in the abyss, will Israel be able to sing this song in the full reality of it. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased, how fury has ceased. And it's just like mocking the mockers, scorning the scorners. Here's this taunt against the oppressor, against fury, and look what's happened to it now. Ceased. Ceased. The one who said he would be like the Most High God. Well, the Most High God doesn't cease. And yet, Satan, you're done. Okay? Your rebellion is over. And so um, these other verses here, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes. You know, when you're the power behind the throne and you're calling the shots, you know, and it's not some international cabal and it's not some crazy, uh, you know, George Soros billionaire or whatever. It's, uh, it's Satan. Satan's the one that runs this world. Satan's the one that has the power behind the throne. And uh, when that staff gets broken and he can't pull his strings anymore, Satan's gonna, uh, Jesus is going to have a millennial kingdom with Satan completely bound. 
So uh, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon. We're told in Romans 8 that creation is groaning until it can be freed. Uh, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead and all the leaders of the earth. And so here's the welcome wagon. This is the, this is the welcoming committee when Satan finally arrives. And it's, not, it's uh, beyond human. It's beyond human. These uh, angels and Nephilim hybrids, these uh, departed spirits, the Rephaim, spirits of the dead, and all the leaders of the earth, the mighty men of old, the men of renown, it raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. And they will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Oh, you know that's got to hurt. Because what is he, he says, I will be like, not those guys, I will be like the Most High God. And these guys are saying, you've become like, like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. You're all impressed with your religion. You're all impressed with your music program. So let's uh, strike up the band because, uh, yeah, the gang's all here. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. <laughs> you can imagine like a, like a bellhop taking somebody to the hotel room and saying, here you go. This, this is your room. Here's your maggots. Here's your worms. How you have fallen from heaven, O Halel ben Shachar, star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. And your whole program of, of ascension is now replaced with your experience of downfall. And uh, this is the, uh, the penultimate fall. He'll have one more fall after this. He'll have his eternal fall into the lake of fire. But for now, this is uh, his fall into the abyss. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will, ra- I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So here's the five I wills. And they're all self-promotion. They're all pride. They're all pride. And as far as God is concerned, there's no pr- place for pride anywhere in the, in the created universe if, if, there's a create, if there's a creation or a creature that's worthy of, of boasting, then boast in the Lord, because God did that. <laughs> okay, And God himself is, uh, is the only I am self-existent being worthy of all praise. Not a creature. So, nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you. Now this too comes to the issue. That God is a demonstrator. And the, you know, he could have just obliterated the rebellion, just said, okay, Satan and a third of you angels, you're rebelling against me, then uh, be gone, you know, and just dissolve them all into nothing. Be done with them, obliterate them. And then spend eternity with the two-thirds of the angels, the elect angels, and say, all right, here we go, eternity future. That's not how he did it. He, he didn't resolve the angelic conflict by fiat, by might, by power but by wisdom, in displaying His glory, in displaying His truth, in displaying why humility is greater than pride. That's what He's showing here. 
So they will see you. They will gaze at you. They will ponder over you. God's got to make sure that not only do they see what they need to see, but they know what they're seeing. They ponder it. They understand what it is that God's doing in his demonstration. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a tohu wabohu wilderness and overthrew its cities who did not allow his prisoners to go home? In the warfare of the angelic rebellion, we see glimpses of it here. Also, uh, it's not on the screen, but Jeremiah 4 gives us a glimpse of that warfare and the global destruction. All right. <clears throat> All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with a slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. There's something tragic about the angelic judgment, about the angelic burial, about the angelic... Remember the fire was the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The fact that humans also got cast into it is just uh, additional uh, sadness. The fire itself is designed for the devil and his angels. And it's designed as a place of darkness and solitary confinement. They're all in there, but they're all in there in a solitary way in the, in the aloneness of their darkness and their rebellion. And uh, not united. That's, there's no unity in that. Even when humans die, what's the idiom? Abraham died and was gathered to his people. Think about that. The, the blessings we have in unity, the blessings in, in, in hu- human community, is the fact that when we die, we're gathered to, you know, my mother and, and loved ones and family members and so forth. And it's a reunion. Going to heaven is a, a big family reunion at that point. And, and, and a get together and a joy and a celebration. Jesus, first of all, and every other believer after that. Not so for the angels. Gathered to his people. What people do they have? They have fellow angels. But they're not procreative. They don't have children. They don't have families. They don't have uh, the, the, the relations like we do. And then ultimately the fire is a place of darkness for all eternity. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. So they attempted to produce offspring and tried to take over the world with Nephilim, with the giants. And God says no. That's not going to happen either. This world belongs to Jesus Christ and his bride. This world belongs to humanity. The God-man bequeaths this world upon man. All right, so there's the fall of Satan. Over in Ezekiel 28. Now, I will accept that there is a human being in verses 1 through 10. And I will respect and I will accept that a human being that's being mentioned there is rather Satan-like. He's an imitator of Satan. Hey, Wes, got another visitor. All right. <clears throat> and I have no issue with uh, the human description here in verses 1 through 10. And he's called the leader of Tyre. Someone who thought he could be like the gods. In, uh, so he has a pride issue too. Here's a human being that's going to try to become like an angel. And uh, so he gets rebuked. 
But then we see the power behind the throne again is what we're dealing with here. So in Ezekiel 28, 11, again the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. And that word king is different than the word that we have for the ruler of Tyre or the leader of Tyre in verse 2. So we have the leader of Tyre in verse 2 and a different word, the word king, that's for the king of Tyre in verse 12. And that change of vocabulary becomes important and that's our clue that we're dealing with a prophetic shift in this text. That whereas the human being is simply an imitator of Satan, a, a representative, this is Satan himself, the power behind the throne. As it says in verse 12, you had the seal of perfection, or you were the sealer of perfection. You were the gold standard. You were the stamp of approval, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And this is, this is a message to an angelic being. It's not a message to a human being. If it was a message to a human being, well, then there's only two humans that can qualify, right? That, that would be Adam and Eve were the only human beings that were ever in Eden, the garden of God. They were in the earthly Eden. And if uh, Ezekiel is writing a letter to the Adam and Eve, he's several thousand years too late. <laughs> okay, They're long dead by the time Ezekiel comes along to write this book. No, it's not a human being being addressed. It's an angelic being, which we'll see. It's called a cherub in this, uh, in this context. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the, the gold. Now, when you look at these stones and you look at Aaron and his ephod in the high priestly garment, you're going to notice something. It's the same outfit. It's the same uniform. That's what we call Satan, the, the Levi Tanin, the Levitical dragon. He's the Levi. He's the priestly dragon, the high priest of the angelic priesthood. But notice, oh, the, work, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets. What a creature. What an unbelievable creature. When we look at the birds and the animals and the fish and the scale, I mean, we see fur and feathers and scales. I don't see gold and silver and turquoise and lapis lazuli and all these stones. What, what zoological creature is decked out like this? Okay, None. If there was, that would be the item number one in hunting season. I mean, go, <laughs> go kill one of those animals. Take that pelt. Make some money out of it. But here's, uh, here's this jewel-encrusted, glorious dragon in his hide. And the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created, they were prepared. The day you were created they were prepared. That's Ezekiel 28, 13. And of all the things you can read as it pertains to Satan and his fall and what he looked like before he fell or what he was like in his perfection before he rebelled against God's authority and took the the other angels with him. I think that word created really rakes on him. He hates that. The idea that he's a created being. But it also grabs our attention too as with respect to this. It's not a zoological creature. This is not something that was birthed or something that was hatched or something that had came from an egg or came from a nest or came from a, 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 a warm, you know, a mammal womb of some kind. He was a created being. Not a human. Not birthed like a human was birthed. This was a, uh, a dragon that was created that way. 
On the day you were created, they were prepared. He was formed, uh, he created a fully grown adult dragon creature. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. I placed you there. So when he rebels, when he said, I will, I will, I will five times, when he wants to be somewhere else, he doesn't want to be where God placed him. He's not satisfied with where God placed him. He's not content with where God placed him. And that, my friends, that's exactly the definition of pride. When you and I fall into pride, what are we saying? I'm saying, I'm not content with where you placed me. I'm not content with the job you gave me. I'm not content with the wife you gave me. I'm not content with the church you gave me. I'm not content with, and all these things. And so you start to think, and then you start to voice, and then you start to act your pride. Your pride, which says, I'm not content with this because I think I deserve that. I should have that job. I should have that woman. I should have that whatever. And so pride is ultimately a dissatisfaction with the wisdom of God who in His goodness is providing you exactly what He wants you to have for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, as the anointed cherub, he blows it. And he does not, he's not faithful in his priestly responsibilities. He says, I placed you there. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. There's creation again. Until unrighteousness was found in you. It started internally. It started with a mental attitude. Remember, God's not the creator of evil, but God created angels and humans with volitional capacity. So being created volitionally and morally accountable, when we express our volition in negative fashion, we have, by definition, unrighteousness. So where did unrighteousness come from? It's a consequential generation of negative volition. Created volition that was chosen to be exercised negatively. And so we have it here. And this is, and, and other than Adam and Eve also, by the way, the only two humans that were ever blameless but became unrighteous, Adam and Eve are the only two humans that were ever blameless, remember, naked in the garden, innocent, and then they fell, they sinned, and they became unrighteous. The only two humans to ever go that direction, from blameless to unrighteous. Every other human, since Adam and Eve, has been born unrighteous and then been made righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay? You're born unrighteous in Adam. You're born a sinner. But when you accept the gospel, when you believe in Jesus Christ, God gives you His righteousness. And so this too is proof that Ezekiel's not speaking to a human being Adam and Eve are the only human beings that were previously blameless but then became unrighteous. This is, this is the fall of Satan right here in this glorious chapter. And to me, the fact that the liberals are all abandoning this, liberal theology is abandoning this. Completely abandoning all things uh, satanic or angelic and, and uh, I think uh, forsaking a very powerful and beautiful truth that, uh, that we need in, uh, in our place here in the body of Christ. All right, I'm running out of time and I'm running out of voice. So read through the rest of this. You're going to notice this, um, that there's pride. 
You were by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence. There's trade in verse 16. There's splendor in verse 17. The more you trade, the more splendor you accumulate. There's multiplication of trade, but then it becomes unrighteous trade. Trade is not unrighteous, but when you use trade unrighteously, then it becomes the perversion that it is. And so in verse 18, it says you profaned your sanctuaries. Remember when Jesus was flipping over the tables and driving out the money changers? You ever wonder why he went so berserk? It seemed to be very un-Jesus-like. He didn't normally do that, but on those occasions he did. He absolutely grabbed a whip and started, started whipping. And, and you think, that was, a, that was a big deal. It was zeal for his father's house consumed him. Why? Because of this. The fall of Satan and the original temple, the original money changer, the original perversion, and the unrighteousness of your trade profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore I brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. So much for the glory of that dragon. Couldn't control the fire in his belly and it just burst through. Consumed every gem. Consumed all the gold. Left him as a scaly leviathan in his physical manifestation. It has consumed you. I've turned you to ashes on the earth. Why? So they can look at you. In the eyes of all who see you, the angelic conflict will be a display for the royal family of God, for the body of Christ, for redeemed humanity to look at this fallen dragon and to testify that Jesus Christ is Lord. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. All right. So when a pastor's preaching on pride and humility, it's more than just a simple thing of pride is bad, humility is good. <laughs> it's more than just a wagging of the finger and stop being so prideful. Okay? Bigger than that. Don't get me wrong, pride is bad. Pride, I think pride is worse than fornicating. I think pride is the number one sin in the, in the book. And uh, there's a whole lot of self-righteous Christians that look down their noses at homosexuals or look down their noses at, at big sinners and say, oh, they're terrible, terrible people. And those legalistic, prideful believers are the worst of them all. Far worse than any of the other sinners they're, they're doing. So these messages on pride and humility come right down to it. And why it is as we're resolving the angelic conflict, watching Jesus exalted and watching Satan brought down. That's our, uh, that's our glory here in the church age. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for providing a voice to get through the hour. This is allergy season and it's rough this time of year, Father, but you, uh, you were very gracious. I do pray also too, Father, for Sunday and, and that horrible message. Father, be gracious, be powerful. Allow for your children to be blessed despite the weaknesses of, of their human shepherd. Be faithful, Father, in this congregation. Open our eyes to see your will that we can make right choices in uh, decisions that are set before us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.